today we're going to be looking at snapshots of Jesus, but those snapshots are going to come not from the Gospel of Mark, which is where Mark Lanier has been, where I was a few weeks ago, but it's going to come from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm working on a book called Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. I've been working on it for, for a number of years. I've had a number of impediments, as some of you know, and have not been able to complete that book, but I'm hopeful that in the next uh, six months or so it's going to be done and to the publisher, Mark Through Old Testament Eyes. The basic idea of the book is this. If we knew the Old Testament well, how would we read Matthew differently? And my contention is that we don't know the Bible very well. That is the, the Old Testament. Uh, we're learning the New Testament by, by working through these texts. But um, we don't really know the Old Testament well. There's a lot there. We know a few stories. We know a few characters. We know, but there's a lot of texture. There's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of insight that we can gain from really understanding the Old Testament better and, and, and knowing that that was the Bible of Jesus. That was the Bible of Matthew. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have the letters of Paul. What they had were the stories of Jesus that had been handed down from the disciples, the first disciples, handed down through the church and the Bible of the early church, which was the Old Testament. And it's beautiful. Did we got it? Is it working? Somebody prayed. <laughs> Who was it? All right, there we got, we got credit. We got credit here. I'm sorry, no credit in heaven for that, but uh, what? That remote should do it? Wow. There we go. Snapshots, Gospel of Matthew. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all your hard work. I'm not sure what's happening with my laptop. It's brand new, brand spanking new. This is what we're going to do. The question has been that Mark has been sort of massaging and helping us think about is how you see Jesus. Because the question that Jesus asked to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi is very pertinent even today. Who do you say that I am? And if we get that wrong, we could, our souls could be in danger, our world could be in danger, our families could be in danger. We've got to get Jesus right. That's really important. And the Bible is the best place for help us do that. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about today. We could talk about Jesus as the Messiah, which we'll do a little bit of. We could talk about Jesus as the son of Abraham, which, which is a part of it as well. We could talk about Jesus as the son of David. These are all titles that Matthew gives in order for us to kind of understand Jesus better. But we have to understand Abraham. We need to understand David better. We need to understand the promises that were given to them just a little bit better. The other thing that we could do, we could look at the fact that, that Matthew frames his entire gospel around the Emmanuel, right? At the very beginning, you will call his name Jesus, and his other name will be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And then at the very end of the gospel, chapter 28, Jesus says, go into the nations, make disciples, baptize, teach, for I am what? With you, always. And right in the middle of the gospel, I think it's chapter 17, Jesus says to, to, to his disciples and to those listening and overhearing the gospel, he says to them, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. 
So this idea of Jesus being with us, the Emmanuel, the God with us one, is now really central to Matthew. And we can talk about that. We can talk about the Son of Man. Mark did this beautifully a few weeks ago. I would just get you to, uh, to, to look back at that. If you missed it, please do go back. If, you, if you're looking on the Internet or watching on the Internet, go back about two or three weeks where Mark talks about uh, the Son of Man and all the Son of Man sayings because it is unique to the Gospels. You don't find that in any of the letters at all. And then, of course, we could describe him as Lord. Notice all capitals. What does that mean? That means that's the name of God that now has been transferred to Jesus, applied appropriately, rightly. The unspeakable name of God, the Yod, the Hey, the Vav, the Hey, that now is the name of Jesus because God has super exalted him. Well, let's start looking at this. This is how the book begins. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Mark, um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And this is how it begins. Now, already we have a translation issue in chapter 1, verse 1. Let me show you how. All right, up here, Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogy is a bad translation. Let me tell you why in just a moment, because this book is much, much more than a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. We already talked about that, son of Abraham. And here it is in the Greek. Now, let me point out something for you. This works. The word Genesis is that second word up there. I was supposed to get that highlighted, but it didn't highlight. Let's see if it does. Geneseos. This is for my Greek students who take Greek with me on Thursday nights. Geneseos is a third declension feminine form. It is where we get the word Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. Better to translate this from Matthew's point of view. This is the book of the beginnings of Jesus the Messiah the son of Abraham, rather than just a genealogy. Now, it just happens to begin with a genealogy because he's connecting Jesus back to Abraham, back to David. And so we're talking here essentially about a new creation. Here's the book of Genesis retold, reset, recalibrated for you. And when we do that, we're going to see Jesus at the heart of creation. So it's a new creation here. Now, this just happens to be an earlier PowerPoint, so I'm missing a few things. If we went back to Isaiah chapter 65, it says, the Lord God says, well, in fact, let me read it for you, because I love this passage. This is the key passage from the Old Testament that describes what God is going to do one day. Isaiah 65, uh, beginning a few verses down in the chapter, let me find it here. This is a new Bible given to me by Some friends who worked on the translation. This is the NIV translation. Hopefully you like that. It's a good translation. Chapter 565. This is what God says. See, I, God, will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over, rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and their crying will be heard no more. I'm looking forward to that day. I've done a lot of weeping and crying the last few years. I don't know about you. I lost my son, 36 years old, two years ago, to a devastating, fast-growing, aggressive cancer. 
I did a lot of weeping. I've lost five other family members since then. All, it's been tough. But I'm looking forward to the new creation. I don't know about you. You've probably done a good bit of weeping in your life. If you've lived very long, you probably have. And he goes on to say this. Never again will it be said that an infant might live just a few days. Or an old man doesn't live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child. Imagine a 100-year-old whippersnapper, right? And not just live a long time, but live well a long time. Strong mind, strong eyes, strong ears. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. That's the beginning of the new creation passages. That's the, the beauty of this passage, quite honestly. Let's see, we're a little bit too far ahead. There we go. Here's the second one, second image. Here's the book of the beginnings of Jesus. This is just a book of beginnings. Jesus is going to keep going after he's, he's gone, right? After he dies and after he's resurrected, he keeps going. He's still what? With us. He is not far from us. When we gather in his name, guess what? He is here in our midst. Have you gathered in his name? I think we probably have. Here's the other thing I want to show you. And, and again, my, my, my Greek students would love this. But here's this word, Christu, right up there. This is the book of the beginnings of Jesus the Messiah. We use the word Christ sometimes like it's a name. But it's not a name, it's a title. It means the Messiah. But what does Messiah mean? There were Jews at the time that didn't believe that there was a Messiah coming at all. There were Jews at the time that believed there were two Messiahs coming. I'm talking about the time of Jesus. There would be a priestly Messiah and a royal Messiah, a kingly Messiah. And then there were some that just thought there would be one. And he would be a political ruler. And he would, he would be a general to an army. And he would, he would fight the Romans and send them back to the boot of Italy where they belonged. But the Messiah means the one who is anointed. The one upon whom oil is poured. And there's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament, all being poured upon the head of the anointed. And it runs down his hair, runs down his chin line and his beard. He's covered with the Spirit, covered with the, the glory of God. This is the Messiah. So here's my definition. I hope you like it. It, it. If you don't, that's okay. But it's one that I've come up with, one that's helpful to me. Messiah means this, God's chosen, anointed agent whose task it is to liberate the world, to free the world, to reconcile the world from disease, death, spiritual power, sin, and oppression, including political oppression, including religious oppression, including any kind of oppression that you have experienced. The Messiah has come to liberate one translation of the Bible calls him the liberating king. The king who comes to liberate, to set us free. I like that. I think that's exactly right. I think it's exactly what Paul would have been on about, exactly what Matthew would have been on about as well. We see that worked out in the, in the gospel. Now, here's, here's another passage here, and it says that he is the son of David. 
The book of the genealogy or beginnings of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And so what we have here is that he is the son of David, right? Now, now what does that mean? If you go back to it, it's a special messianic, and we're back to the messianism, special messianic passage reminding us of Scripture. Now, if we knew Scripture well enough, we'd know that he's referring here to what we call, in our translation, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. I don't have the whole passage up for you, but here's the good part of it. The prophet Nathan, speaking for God to King David, says to him this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish your kingdom. Now, you and I have no frame of reference to understand that exactly. Every king who came to the end of his life was always worried what would happen next. Are my enemies going to come up and, 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 and just overcome my sons and my daughters and my family for when the dynasty changed, typically in the ancient world, it meant the death of the king's entire family. Very often happens. You find the rulers, you find the heirs, you find the cousins, you find the grandkids, and they're all gone. All of them. And if they're not killed, they're taken off into exile somewhere, never to be heard of again. It could happen in our own time. It could happen in our own days in a place today called Ukraine, depending upon how that battle and how those battles come out. But David is being told by God through the prophet, your kingdom is going to continue. The son of your loins, of your body, is going to be king. And I will establish, I will establish Will there be enemies? Yes. Will there be an uprising? Yes. There always was, seems like. But your son will consolidate power and be the next king. It was important because Saul had only been, had been a, a one-king dynasty, the king before King David. And then the next thing God says, he will build a house for my name. David had said, no, I'm going to do that. David thought it was his task. I'm going to build a place for the king. He thought he was going to do it. But God said, no. I don't want you to build a house. I want your son to build a house. And he did. And it was built and dedicated in the year, what we call the year 950 B.C. It was a beautiful place, a, a place of grandeur. We'll say more about that in a minute. God says, I am going to be to your son like a father. There will be a special father-son relationship between me and your son. That title, Son of God, initially meant, in this line of thinking, that the, it would be a Davidic king. Not a transcendent being who comes from heaven, but Son of God was initially an idea that it would be the king of David, a son of David who would arise to be king and to have this everlasting throne. Next thing, which seems a little far-fetched, and I can't imagine David just scratching his head when he heard this. God says, in your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Not only will your son sit on the throne, but your son's sons will sit on the throne. And eventually, 
your son will sit on the throne forever. A forever kingdom. David probably couldn't grasp that. He probably scratched his head. And that promise never came true until Jesus of Nazareth was born. That promise only came true when Jesus of Nazareth was born. So that's the promise where we get the idea of son of David. It is the beginning of the messianic hope, the beginning of the promise that God would send his agent into the world to liberate the world from sin, death, disease, oppression of every kind. The final passage, the final phrase, we you Avraham, the son of Abraham. I think what Matthew's on about, and I think we can argue this, we can see it in the texture of the book, is that he's, he's making the case that Jesus is true Israel. You see, Israel began with Avraham, Abraham. That's where it began. And Israel had fallen off the grid for a lot of reasons, disobeyed God over and over again. God said in one place, oh, how I long for Israel, how I would long to, to, to bring Israel back and bring Israel back into my arms. But they walked away from me. They're stubborn. They're, they're stiff-necked. And over and over you see these kind of passages here. The true Israel, the son of Abraham. Well, where does that come from? If we were good readers of the Old Testament, we would know that the promise of God to Abraham is found first, not only, but found first and over and over again in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And this is what it says. Very important passage. This is the beginning of God's promise to Abraham and his people. Now, you've got to remember, Abraham and his family had been wandering Arameans. They'd been nomads. They didn't have any land to call their own. They had no place to put in crops. They just went, wandered from pasture to pasture, game to game, hoping to find to be able to find something to eat and something to take care of themselves. But this is what God says. The Lord says, notice all capitals, all capitals. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, the country that you know now, which was Haran, and your kindred, leave your family behind, leave your father's house behind, and go to a land that I will show you. I've got some land for you, Abraham. It's good land. It's land flowing with milk and honey. It's not just arid land that you'll find a little tuft of grass here or a little oasis there, but a land flowing with milk and honey and rivers. And it's such good land that everybody's going to want it. The Egyptians are going to want it, and the Assyrians are going to want it, and the Syrians are going to want it, and everybody's going to want it, and you'll have battles. But later on, he says, I'll protect you. The other thing he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You will become a great nation. Out of all the Old Testament people, who's still around? No Amorites. No, what? Amalekites, no parasites. Well, actually, well, yeah, they're parasites. Uh, but parasites with a Z. Parasites, no parasites. No Hittites. But yes, there's Israel still there today and it's still with us. The Jewish people have been attacked time and time again, viciously. But yet they're still with us. I'll make you a great nation. By the way, it's a, it's a wonderful book, if you, if you get it, by Thomas Cahill. I should have put a picture of it up here. 
is called a gift of the Jews. If you want to know how Jews and Judaism have affected our Western culture, there's no better book. The Gift of the Jews by Thomas Cahill. Great book. You'll be a great nation. Still a great nation. I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great in all the world. And last, well, not last, next to last. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. And finally, the God's promise that never came true until Jesus of Nazareth was born. Never came true. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. We're part of that universal blessing. You and I, we come from many different backgrounds, many different kinds, many different people, many different families. But in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. All right, now I want you to be on. How many of you have started a read the Bible through in 100 days or a one-year kind of program? Has anybody done that? All right, a lot of you have done that. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. Now, let's also be honest about this. How many of you, when you got to chapter 1 of Matthew and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, and you skipped over that, would you raise your hand? All right, thank you for being honest. God bless you. God sees that hand. God sees that hand. If you came in a bus, they'll wait. Anyway. So here, here it is in the King James. I love the King James. It's not our language anymore, but I still love it. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Jesus. So right after the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and this is the book about the beginnings of Jesus, and this is a book that tells Jesus as the Messiah and as the son of David and as the son of Abraham, he turns that sort of scheme around. He starts now with Abraham, and he moves through David, he moves to exile, and he moves finally to Jesus. He sort of reverses that. We call that a chiastic scheme. Of, of literary development. Now, here we go. I want you to notice something about these few verses. If you look at genealogies, I think there are 27 genealogies in the Old Testament. I tried to refresh my memory, but I couldn't find them all. Most of them are found in the book of Genesis. Genesis. Most of those, the others are found in the book of First Chronicles. But if you look at almost all the genealogies, Women are never mentioned, despite the fact that women are pretty important when it comes to begetting. <laughs> women aren't there. How is it that you go from, notice, Abraham, Isaac, where's Sarah? She's pretty famous, right? J Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judas, on down. No women. And this is true of most genealogies because it's a patriarchal world. Patriarchal world. And so women are very seldom mentioned. But Matthew mentions five women, count them five, in his genealogy. He does so for a purpose. And I think I'll try to, I think we can talk a little bit about that here, purpose. Now, um, here's the first place. Yudas de Egenesin, Tanferis Kaitan Zara Ektes Tamar. All right, it's the first one. It says that Judah uh, was the father of, begat, Ferris and Zerah, ektes Tamar. Out of the body of Tamar. 
That's a pretty literal way of saying it, right? And that's, the, that's the way he deals with it here. He says, the very first one, Judas begat Pharis and Tara of Thamar. Literally, out of Tamar. First woman mentioned. Now, if we do the story of Tamar, we can go back to the book of Genesis. It's a fairly scandalous story. It's, uh, it's, it's a, yeah, scandalous story. It, it's about Judah who failed to do right by his daughter-in-law after his second son died. And he said to her, uh, just go back to your family and we'll take care of this later. And he never took care of things because he now belonged to his family. She literally belonged and was a part of Judah's family, but he sent her away. Tamar took things into her own hands and she knew where he was headed, and so she went and played the prostitute. She became pregnant by him, Judah. And at the very end of the story, when it was revealed what he had done, ironically, Judah says, she is more righteous than I am. She's done the right thing. She has produced these two children, and even though the means of it we might call scandalous, it was still the right thing. She is part of the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus. It's an amazing story. Now, Matthew could have just skipped over Tamar, but he didn't. He named her so that we would be reminded of her name. If we knew the Old Testament, Tamar, we would understand a little bit about what he's winking at at that particular point. Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. She comes out of that life and converts to the faith in the one true God to become part of Israel. A very famous citizen that was known by many. We should get to know her story in the book of Joshua. Then Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. I know Ruth, four little chapters, beautiful book. We all know Ruth, right? Right? If we don't, we ought to get familiar with it. This is an amazing story. It's an amazing story of, of redemption. And all of these ideas of redemption, being an outsider, being a woman, all of that sort of coalesces now in the family of Jesus. And finally, Jesse begat David the king, and David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Wow. See if this goes. Come on now. Come on. Come on. There you go. Five women. Five women in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, quote, the wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. You know the story, right? It may be the best story of all of those, and Matthew goes the extra mile. He could have ignored that and just said, David fathered Solomon. But he, what did he say? He fathered Solomon through the wife of another man who happened to be not a Jew at all, not an Israelite, but a Hittite. More about that. Why is he doing this? I think Matthew's trying to signal something to us. He's trying to signal that in the ministry of Jesus that women are going to have a new role. Women are not going to be second-class citizens. It was the Greeks that defined women as deficient men. Second class. 
There was something wrong with women from the very beginning. I could tell you why, but it'd probably embarrass you. It would embarrass me. But there was something wrong with women, all women. It's because they were women. That's the way the world looked at women. Jesus is saying, no, that may be the way you thought it was, but that's not the way it's going to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God reorders all priorities. And we see that worked out in the scripture. But there's a lot of shocking news through here. David fathered Solomon through the wife of Uriah. Scandalous story. A king who was after God's own heart, yet he was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of conspiracy. He said, I never had sexual relations with that woman. That's what he said. He said, I never did it. And finally, he was guilty of murder. Because Uriah was sent to the front of the line. Everybody was told to sort of step back in the midst of the battle. And Uriah was killed. David ordered his his killing. And ironically, he carried the letter. He carried the letter to the front lines. And he never opened it to see what it said. Maybe he couldn't read it. I don't know. That carried his death sentence. He carried that letter from King David's palace. All the way out to the battle. Shocking news. Scandal. If you look at the life of Jesus, the family of Jesus, you see that the family has a checkered past, just like your family, just like my family, just like our families. Gives me a little bit of hope. But Matthew could have avoided all of that by just mentioning the names of the men. He could have avoided all that embarrassment, but I think he's trying to tease it out and remind us of these names and of these people and of these stories. A great scandal. And what we find in the genealogy of Jesus is that in Jesus, outsiders are becoming insiders. Those who are far away are brought near. Those who are foreigners and strangers become our friends and our colleagues, our brothers, and our sisters. That's the way of the kingdom. And so, yes, we have Ruth, who's a Moabitess. We have Rahab, who's a a Canaanite. We have Uriah, who's a Hittite. And perhaps even Bathsheba herself was a Hittite. We don't know. We don't know enough about her to be able to say. But the blood that is flowing, blood of the nations that is flowing in the family of Jesus finds now that the Abraham blessing is being extended to them. In you, Jesus. In you, son of Abraham. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's our charge. That's what God's calling us to do and to be part of in so many different ways. Oh, tax day. Wait a minute. What happened? Tax. That's for my old... Tax day, by the way, let me remind you, is uh, the 15th of, 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 anyway. For some reason, my PowerPoint is all messed up. And uh, let's see. Yeah, that's it. That's the IRS. Oh, yeah, this is from last time. Somehow it got mixed, mixed up. I don't know. So I'll have, to, I'll have to finish up here just with a couple of, couple of words. And I'll do so from the Scripture itself. One of the great themes of Matthew is that Jesus 
is the fulfiller of prophecy. Jesus comes to fulfill prophecy. And over and over, we find these, this statement made in, in Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. All this took place that was spoken by Jeremiah. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken. And so that word fulfill, fulfill, fulfill is, is all over the scriptures. And so let me give you an example or two of that. And so we'll get it, see, what, what does it mean? Because every time you see the word fulfill, it doesn't mean the same thing. Don't get the idea that fulfill always means the same thing. It has several, it has layers of meaning in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. This is a very famous passage. All this, that is the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. In this case, the prophet is not named. Other times it is, prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's one of the examples. All this took place. Here's another one, chapter 2, verse 15. This is a, an interesting one. So he, Joseph, got up. He had a, he had a dream vision. He got up, took the child, his mother, during the night... This was after the wise men, the so-called wise men. That's, that's what we call them. The Jews would have never called them wise men because they were, they were polytheists. Believed in lots of gods probably initially. Maybe they became converts some way along the way. But they weren't wise. They, 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 were, they were astrologers. They were watchers of the stars. They weren't full of the wisdom of God. But we call them wise men. But the magi, as they're called in Scripture had come and to, to give honor to this Christ child. They, had, they knew enough Bible to know that there was sometimes a ruler going to be born. And so after that, Joseph got up, took the child, his mother, during the, during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. In other words, the family stayed there a few years. And this fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, in this case, unnamed, but the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. It's an amazing passage. Now, this is not a prediction. When Hosea spoke that, yes, I think when Isaiah spoke, Isaiah 7, about a virgin conceiving, yes, there's a prediction that comes true. But what he's doing, what Hosea is doing, is not a prediction at all. What Hosea is doing is he's looking back to Israel's history. And he's doing something pretty incredible he said out of egypt god is speaking the prophet is speaking for god out of egypt i god have called my son israel was called as early as exodus chapter 3 was called the son of god the sons of god the daughters of god we see that expressed in a number of places but here in hosea out of egypt i have called my son he's looking back from hosea's day to the exodus out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew's looking back on that same event. And he sees that as a typology. That's the key word, a typology. Now, typology is the strategy or the skill of being able to see two events together, both mutually interpreting one another. 
and particularly with the scripture, it is two events that God has brought about now that inform each other. There is no greater saving event in the Old Testament than the Exodus. It is the event par excellence for understanding how God can save the Jews and did save the Jews. And, and save the family of Abraham and, and preserve them from being eradicated, destroyed, completely out of history. So what, what, what I think Matthew is doing, he's taking the, the most important event of salvation and redemption from the Old Testament, bringing that together with Jesus and seeing how even in this new event of the life and the beginnings of Jesus, what we have is an event that's been ratcheted up escalated not only is are the jews going to be saved in this new act of salvation but all flesh will see the glory of god all people so we have a a, an incredible event in the old testament that is brought now to inform out of egypt i have called my son now if we continue to read hosea 11 what we find is that god is in a bit of a struggle Because after he says, out of Egypt I call my son, he said, and the more I loved them, the more I cared for them, the more I nurtured them, the more they ran away from me. Some of you know that as parents. You've you've raised children as as best you know how, and they turned against you. That's that's what God's saying about Israel. I raised these. I I brought them out of slavery and and redeemed them, and I love them. And I brought them to, to myself. I fed them and I nurtured them. But they ran away from me. They left me. And so much of the story of the Old Testament is about how Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, turned their back upon God. And God, on the one hand, says, I, I can't stand any longer. I'm going to send them away into exile. I want to send them back to Egypt. And then in the next verse, God said, how can I do that? Because I my, my love is so warm for them. It's like the struggle of every parent who has been heartbroken over a son or a daughter who has left them, walked away from their life, their faith, their, their care. The world is filled with that. And so Jesus is the one who is not like that. Now, typology comes in all sorts of phases, and we've got to be done here in just a minute. But let me, let me, let me tell you one phase. There, there's, there's this passage in chapters 11 and 12 that says, One greater than the temple is here. Right? The temple. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Solomon is here. Now, if we knew our Old Testaments, we knew the significance of the temple and of the story of Jonah and everything, we could be able to see, here's Jonah, and this is now the new Jonah. And I think Mark gets it right that, that Jonah is a resurrection story. It's not just, hey, look how a guy can survive being swallowed by a big fish. By the way, the Hebrew word for fish is dog. Big dog, a dogfish, I guess. No, it's not a dogfish. Um, Well, it wasn't a whale. One greater than Solomon is here. You know the stories of Solomon. He built the temple. He was known for his wisdom all around the world. He wrote so many great proverbs. One, here's Solomon. Here's one greater. That's fulfillment. 
we can carry that to a next level. That's typology. Connecting two events of salvation history and bringing those together in a sort of a self-interpreting move so that we know more about Solomon and we know more about Jesus. We know more about Jonah than we know about Jesus now. And then there's all these likes and unlikes in the book of Matthew. Like Moses, Jesus ascended a mountain and gave the, word, gave the law, a new law, to his disciples. Like Moses, like Moses, we could, we could find a lot of places where the book of Matthew is showing how the life of Jesus is like Moses. Like Moses, Jesus is imperiled by the decree of a king. In this case, the Pharaoh. But also, unlike Israel, Jesus never disappointed God. He didn't go away from God. He didn't say, well, thanks for raising me. I'm going to try this on my own. No, he said, every word that I speak is his word. Everything that I do is his, his action that he wants me to do. He said, I am so in tune. I am one with the Father, Jesus says. And so what we see in, in, the, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew are a number of different impetuses. One is that, and I wish we had, had a chance to look at some other text today uh, on the slides, but on the one hand, Jesus is defining and liberating women to a new role in the kingdom. Not one of subservience, not one of second-classness, not one of women are all deficient men, right? Not at all. He's elevating women. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see that in the letters of Paul. We see that in letters of Peter and other places as well. And he's the one who fulfills Scripture. All Scripture. And if we don't know the Old Testament, it's hard to see those fulfillments. But the more we know, the better we know. I would encourage you to get up close and personal with the Old Testament. That's the Bible of Jesus. The Bible of Paul. The Bible of the early church. And the more we know, the better we can see those connections. Just like Matthew. Between Solomon, one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than the temple is here. And unlike Israel, Jesus is this. He is one in whom the Father is, at the age of 30, well-pleased. Not just pleased, but well-pleased. My hope is that uh, as we kind of begin looking at some of the snapshots of Jesus in Matthew, that we'll, we'll take up this understanding of, of Jesus' appreciation for and elevating the role of women. And understand the importance of elevating the outsider, the stranger, the alien in our midst. Now, I'm not trying to be political here. What I'm trying to say is that we as Christians, if we're following Jesus, what would Jesus do in all this? It's not a political answer. I think politics is penultimate to the ultimate of the kingdom of God. Politics is a step removed, whatever your politics are. It is not as important as being a kingdom citizen following Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the truth of it. You could disagree, but then you'd be wrong. Um, a new role for women. 
One who includes the excluded. One who is a friend of sinners. Right? One who says yes when everybody else is saying no. One, one who fulfills promises. Promises. One who connects. One who can connect the old and the new together. My hope and prayer would be that we could do that as we study together in these snapshots of Jesus. Let me pray and give a blessing, and then uh, I know it's time for worship. Father, thank you for these men and women. I appreciate the fact that this computer didn't work today. I, uh, I don't know why, but I just think that it happened to be uh, even that in your purpose. We thank you for the technology that allows us to communicate, not only here, but also in other places around the world. And I pray your blessing upon these good people. I pray your life. I pray that their enemies will not overcome them. I pray that the diseases will not take them. I pray that those that oppress them will be defeated. I pray and ask you, God, that you be greater than all of our enemies. And help us to befriend and be friends to those and turn the other cheek to those that would do otherwise to us. Help us to follow Jesus. Help us to see Jesus as he is. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.